There's a lot of confusion about how U.S. fighter jets have come to be shooting so many objects out of the sky the past few days. The White House is under pressure to explain. It's Monday, February 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the latest on the many balloons spotted flying over North America. Also ahead, one week after a massive earthquake struck eastern Turkey and northern Syria, residents are dealing with burying the tens of thousands of dead. And Adidas is expected to lose $1.2 billion in revenue this year from the decision to not sell the Yeezy-branded merchandise. They're smart to try to lose as little as they can, uh, but they're clearly going to lose money no matter what alternatives they choose. Experts say merchandise from the partnership between the artist formerly known as Kanye West and Adidas will be a hard resell. It's 401. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. military has yet to determine the origins of three additional objects that were shot down over the weekend, but the White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby is ruling out one thing. I don't think the American people need to worry about aliens with respect to these craft. Kirby says the objects were flying at a much lower altitude than the suspected Chinese spy balloon that was down roughly a week earlier off South Carolina's coast. He says there's no specific reason to suspect the mysterious craft detected over Alaska, northern Canada, and yesterday over Lake Huron were conducting surveillance, but surveillance remains a possibility. The unknown objects were considered a potential threat to civilian air traffic and were shot down. Several children reportedly were pulled alive from collapsed buildings in Turkey today, a week after the country endured its deadliest earthquake and aftershocks in recent memory. The dramatic rescues offer hope to families watching. The confirmed death toll climb by the day. It currently stands at more than 35,000 in Turkey and Syria. But the search for survivors continues. U.S.-based rescuers are working alongside Turkish rescuers in attempting to cut through the rubble of level buildings in Aydaman. NPR's Kristen Wright reports that U.S. officials are pledging to support monumental relief efforts in both Turkey and Syria. The U.S. is promising to provide $85 million in urgent humanitarian aid to the region. U.S. Ambassador to Turkey Jeff Flake spoke to NPR and says help is reaching rebel-held areas in northwest Syria. We have uh, humanitarian partners that are working there for a while that are providing relief irrespective of uh, who controls the area. Still, relief efforts are slower getting to victims there, and a U.N. official says they're being left behind. Kristen Wright, NPR News, Washington. The final recommendations of a special grand jury investigating attempts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election will largely be kept under wraps, according to a judge ruling today. But Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler reports some sections are slated to be released later this week. The special purpose grand jury can't issue indictments, but instead wrote a report outlining what laws might have been broken and who allegedly broke them when former President Donald Trump and his allies tried to reverse his defeat. But the judge ruled that naming names outside of charges being brought would violate due process concerns, so most of the report will be kept private for now. There are some parts the judge says can be released on Thursday, however. The introduction, conclusion, and a section addressing concern that some witnesses lied under oath, without, of course, mentioning who they may be. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler. 
The Dow is up 377 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. No criminal charges should be brought against six police officers involved in the initial shooting of 41-year-old Justin Root outside Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston three years ago this month. That's according to an independent investigation released by the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office today. That shooting took place after the 41-year-old Root allegedly threatened a hospital security guard with a fake gun. After a brief pursuit, police later shot and killed Root in Chestnut Hill. Norfolk County District Attorney's Office determined that Root was shot 26 times. His family says Root was experiencing a mental health crisis and that police mishandled the situation. Fresh from her trip to Washington, D.C. last week, Governor Mara Healey says she is working to secure federal funding to deal with two aging Cape Cod bridges. At the State House today, Healey said she has had productive discussions on Capitol Hill about replacing the 90-year-old Bourne and Sagamore bridges, a project that needs nearly 1.9 billion federal dollars. Massachusetts recently lost its second bid to secure those funds. It's making sure that we demonstrate to the federal government that we have uh, the bandwidth, the workforce capacity. Uh, funding, yes, is important because the state needs to put its own amount of funding up. But, you know, the, the conversations that we had, they were a good start, and this is a top priority for me. Healy said the state will apply again soon for the federal money. Full implementation of a law enshrining protections for police dogs in Massachusetts will now be delayed until next year. Nero's law is named for the German shepherd named Nero, who was injured on the job back in 2018. Emergency responders were not authorized to treat his injuries at the scene. Nero's law intends to reverse that. Senator, State Senator Mark Montigny says the delay is not acceptable and will jeopardize the health and safety of our canine officers without justification. Nero's human partner, Sergeant Sean Gannon, was killed during that incident. The state's Energy and Environmental Affairs Office has declared an end to the nine-month drought in Massachusetts, the northeast part of the state. Cape Cod and the islands were still under some drought conditions as of last month, but officials say above-average rainfall in January replenished streams, lakes, and groundwater levels. Sports Harvard takes on Northeastern in the Beanpot Final tonight over at the Garden. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, chance of showers tonight. The lows around 35, partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to clear skies. The highs will be around 48, partly sunny and breezy on Wednesday. Right now, 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Three times in the past three days, U.S. fighter jets shot down slow-moving objects flying high above North America. One in Alaska, one in the Yukon in Canada's north, and yesterday over Lake Huron. Those came about a week after the U.S. shot down a Chinese balloon off the South Carolina coast. It's all extremely weird. And today at the White House, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre wanted to clear up one thing. There is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Darn. Okay, so not aliens. But what were they? I'm joined now by NPR's Scott Detrow and Greg Myrie. Hey to both of you. Hello. Hi, Elsa. 
All right. So, Scott, I want to start with you. You were in that White House briefing today. What more do we know about these weird things in the air? Other than they're not aliens. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so White House spokesman John Kirby kept stressing that the U.S. government does not have the answers yet to the really big questions here. Who launched these objects? and what these objects were doing in the skies. And Kirby said the government is working to recover debris to try and find out. And he says in all three recent cases, the U.S. took the same steps. We assessed whether they posed any kinetic threat to people on the ground. They did not. We assessed whether they were sending any communication signals. We detected none. We looked to see whether they were maneuvering or had any propulsion capabilities. We saw no signs of that. And we made sure to determine whether or not they were manned. They were not. But he said in each case, the U.S. could not rule out surveillance capabilities, so the president ordered them shot down. Okay, but Greg, why why do there seem to be so many of these mysterious things floating in the sky all of a sudden? Yeah, also I think it's two things. First, the discovery of the Chinese spy balloon was just so unusual, so public. You know, spying is not supposed to be public, and this put the national security community on high alert. And when you start looking for something, you often tend to find more of it. And the second thing is the Air Force says it has changed the parameters on its radar. The filters were looking for things like missiles and jet planes, uh, not slow-moving balloons at, at a high altitude. So the parameters are were set wider. And think of it like an email filter. The U.S. was looking for the important stuff, possible threats, and other stuff was going to junk mail. Uh, when the Chinese balloon was uncovered, the U.S. went back, looked at old junk mail. It saw the Chinese balloons had come several times in recent years. And then in the past week, the U.S. has picked up other slow-moving objects that it couldn't ID, and it shot them down. Okay, so wading through this junk mail, I mean, besides the, the potential for surveillance, how are they deciding, like, what to shoot down and what not to shoot down? So the Air Force is authorized to to take immediate action and shoot something down um, if there's a hostile action or intent. But as as, as Scott was saying, or we, we just heard, that that really wasn't the case. So the information was taken, worked worked its way up the chain. President Biden did make the decision to shoot it down. Basically, it seems because these these objects were seen as a possible risk to civilian aircraft. A couple were around forty thousand feet. Another was at twenty thousand feet. So it it could have gotten in the way of uh, of other aircraft. We still don't know if it belonged to a state, a private company, uh, or an academic institution, for example. Okay, but Scott, I'm curious because I know that the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, spoke about all of this today. Why haven't we heard from President Biden yet? I mean, it's a great question. Uh, President Biden did not have any public events today. There have been a lot of calls for explanation on all of this. Uh, Marco Rubio, who's the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Uh, committee tweeted this morning, in its 65-year history, NORAD never shot down an aircraft over U.S. airspace. Over the 10 days, they have shot down one balloon and three objects. Americans need to hear directly about this from their president today. So Biden hasn't spoken about this. The administration has been briefing lawmakers. And we have, you know, as you heard, we, we got a lot of details today from the White House, if not the president specifically. I was struck by one thing, that, that, that Kirby kept contrasting how much the U.S. knew about that initial spy balloon versus how much the U.S. doesn't know about these last three objects, even noting several different times that, that there might be a chance here that some of these came from commercial or research operations. It's just very unclear right now. Hmm. Okay. Well, in the time that we have left, I'd like to get a couple of quick parting thoughts from each of you. What will you be watching? for? Are we still holding out hope for aliens? Greg? 
<laughs> well, uh, I, I wouldn't hold your breath. We should note China and the U.S. have massive sophisticated espionage programs. They're constantly spying on each other. And many in the national security community see the spy balloon as an important wake-up call because it, it really put the focus on Chinese spying, and they feel there needs to, to be more of this. That said, many see the balloon program in China as relatively low-level activity, just a small part of these Chinese efforts that target the U.S. government and, and military secrets. Scott? I mean, I'm always holding out hope for aliens, but but <laughs> um, but seriously, Biden and the White House talk so much about managed competition with China, not conflict. Now, with U.S. fighter jets shooting objects out of the sky, I think there's a real threat that relations veer in the direction of conflict. So how does this de-escalate? That's my big question. That is NPR's Scott Detrow and Greg Myrie. Thank you to both of you. Sure thing. My pleasure. It was the announcement heard around the internet. Shopify was doing away with meetings. The e-commerce platform called it useful subtraction, freeing up time to allow people to get stuff done. And the news got people talking and wondering, well, how do you actually do that? NPR's Andrea Shu and Stacey Vanek-Smith take it from here. The meeting situation in a lot of jobs has gotten kind of out of control since COVID. In one study, Microsoft found the amount of time workers spend in meetings has more than tripled. That's a lot of meetings. Yes. But I can see it. Here at NPR, there are a lot of things I could be going to. There's the weekly all staff. There are two weekly pitch meetings. A training session, actually two of those. There's the audience insights meeting. And then there are the extracurricular fun meetings, like trivia night. Of course, I do love trivia. Still, it's easy to see how a lot of us hit peak meeting misery over the past few years. The idea of deleting all those meetings seems so refreshing. And radical. We have been wondering, how are things going at Shopify a month in? Yes. So we got on a Zoom with Shopify's chief operating officer, Kaz Najatian. He's the one who wrote the memo about purging meetings. Turns out he is as hardcore as he sounds. All meetings are bad meetings. Andrea, he is a true believer. We deleted 322 thousand hours of meetings. That is in a company of about 10,000 employees. And they actually wrote code to do this. There is a bot that went into everyone's calendars and purged all recurring meetings with three or more people. Now, after two weeks, people were allowed to add things back if they really needed to. But not on Wednesdays. They have no meetings Wednesdays. And if you violate that... You get a uh, Slack bot telling you, you booked a meeting at a time you're not allowed to book a meeting. Are you sure you want to do this? Najatian told us most Shopify employees are following the rules and they're so much happier. I had an engineer tell me for the first time in a very long time they got to write code all day. Apparently, this is what engineers want, just a code in peace. <laughs> uh, but mostly, he says, this moment for Shopify was this big reset. Now people feel empowered to say no to meeting invitations, even when those invitations come from really senior people. People have been saying no to meetings from me, and I'm a CEO at a company, and that's great. Okay, but to be fair, Stacey, in putting this story together, you and I did have a bunch of <laughs> meetings. Yes. And I thought they were pretty useful. Yeah, I mean, we tossed ideas back and forth. We roped in our editors. We planned out what we would report. It was way better than just slacking endlessly. But when we asked Kaz Najatian about this, about collaboration, well, here's what he said. I think collaboration is a wonderful thing, but the largest collaborative things in the world happen without meetings. 
every open source project, open source software project in the world is created with no meetings. People just collaborate and code. And at that point in the conversation, I was kind of lost. I mean, I don't know how to write code. Do you, Stacey? I do not. Maybe we're doomed to go to meetings, Andrea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've all been in meetings that have gone on way too long, where the conversation has gone off the rails. I get that. But how much we need or don't need meetings, maybe that's not so universal. Yes. I mean, at Shopify, for instance, everyone is remote. Kaz Najatian was in the Bahamas when we talked to him. Also, you know, their main product is this digital platform. Maybe they're fine with very few meetings. And I get why companies want fewer meetings. For one thing, meetings are expensive. Steven Rogelberg at UNC Charlotte has studied this. He says companies waste tens of millions of dollars forcing people to attend unnecessary meetings. I hate meetings. I hate meetings. But... But, he says, good meetings are critical to a company's success. He says that's how people can be heard. And virtual meetings, he thinks, are actually helping to make meetings better. Inherently, virtual meetings are set up to be much more democratic, right? There's no head of table effects. Everyone is on equal standing around the virtual table. He loves that people have the option to just drop something into the chat box if they don't want to speak up. What's more, he says studies show companies that run excellent meetings are more profitable because their employees are more engaged. They do a better job. On the flip side, disengaged workers end up quiet quitting or actually quitting. We've seen a lot of that lately. We have. And you know, Andrea, even if good meetings have value, no one's going to like really say they love meetings. That is not socially acceptable, right? But the utterances about how much you hate meetings is completely on brand and universal. Now, Rogelberg does see a silver lining here. All of our collective rage about meetings since the pandemic, well, companies are finally paying attention. I mean, I am talking to organizations all the time, and I am just finding the appetite for solutions the highest it's ever been. In fact, Andrea, just days after Shopify's announcement, we got a memo. Yeah, here at NPR, the hunt for unnecessary meetings is on. Just as long as they don't cut trivia night. <laughs> Andrea Shu, Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, Republicans are using their House majority to build an impeachment case against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. But no cabinet member has ever been removed that way, and Mayorkas isn't backing down. That's ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at CambridgeNaturals.com. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day higher. The Dow was up 1.1% at 34,246. The S&P 500 up 1.14% at 4137. And the Nasdaq was up almost 1.5% at 11,892. In other business news, Lexington-based pharmaceutical startup Frequency Therapeutics is laying off over half of its employees. That's 26 out of a total of 48 workers for the company that develops drugs for hearing loss, according to the Boston Business Journal. 
Company shares took a nosedive today after a drug in a clinical trial failed to improve patient speech perception. Frequency will pivot to focus on multiple sclerosis and other muscular disorders. Drivers in several communities can expect slow going on area highways overnight this week. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation says intermittent ramp and lane closures are needed to test wrong-way vehicle detection systems. It's part of a two $2.6 million pilot program in the state. Affected highways include 93 North, Mass Pike East in Boston, Route 6 in Barnstable, Interstate 195 in Fall River, and Route 3 in Chelmsford. It's 420. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of some showers tonight. The lows around 35 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to clear skies, a high of 48. Partly sunny, breezy on Wednesday, a high of 54. Right now, 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Survivors of the earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria last week enter a grim new phase of their struggle. At least 33,000 people have died, and their relatives are working to recover their remains and give them proper burials. And Pierre's Jason Bobian reports that communities are forming to treat with respect those who have been lost. <laughs> On the outskirts of a cemetery overlooking the town of Pasarjik, Ali and Fatih Gul are preparing a grave for their uncle. The uncle's body is still trapped in the rubble of his collapsed apartment building. The brothers lost five members of their family in the quake. They're still waiting to bury three. Ali says through an interpreter that he wants his uncle's grave to be ready. They are originally from here, therefore they bring their dead people here. They buried some of them who they could get out of the rubber and they are waiting for the rest. The brothers have hired three grave diggers to dig the hole. The workers tell them the normal price for the work, but then quickly add, if you don't have any money, we'll dig it for free. Nearly 500 people from Pazarchik and surrounding villages have already been buried. Fatih is employed with the local municipal government. He says it's been a lot of work, but everyone will eventually be properly laid to rest. Pazarcik has 7,000 population. There is no undefined burial or funeral. We know everyone, he says it, because our family ties are too strong. There's a calmness at the cemetery in Pazarcik. That's not the case in the nearby city of Karman Marash where the air is thick with wood smoke and dust from backhoes digging through the rubble of collapsed buildings. Right next door to an outdoor stadium full of white tents where hundreds of people are now living, there's a temporary morgue. It's inside a gym, but its parking lot also holds a soup kitchen. A family comes here and we manage them to go right for food and go left for a deaf human. 
Fritz Mertens is with a team of German undertakers called Death Care. He says some people arrive in small cars with a family member wrapped in a sheet in the back. Another ambulance backs up to the front door of the gym slash morgue, followed by a truck. They both carry more corpses. Please, please go uh, by side because yes, absolutely. Uh, deliv uh, delivery. No? The volunteers from Mertens' organization clean and disinfect the bodies. A doctor on site officially verifies the identity of the corpse if possible. Then the German death care team close the body bag. If the body bag is uh, damaged, we get a new one and uh, the family get a small piece of paper with the name on it. And with this, the next transportation is out of the town to the cemetery and then they get buried. From the makeshift morgue in Karman Marash, relatives of the deceased can collect the corpses. But with thousands of people dead in this city alone, most families have nowhere to take them. All of the cemeteries are full. So most of the bodies are sent to a new mass grave on the outskirts of the city. A steady stream of corpses keeps arriving in ambulances, trucks, and even private cars. A woman sits on the ground, caressing a full black body bag. Each body is at first inspected and photographed by police officers. Then the corpse is zipped back into its bag and sent to be ritually washed according to Islamic custom. At the top of the hill there are 19 tents for body washing. A group of female body washers takes a break by a small fire to warm up. They wear long blue surgical smocks over puffy winter jackets. Mevlude Gunay says the women working here have come from all over Turkey to help in the midst of this catastrophe. Gunay is from a town which is 10 hours from here. At home, she's a teacher. Her mother was a Gassal. Gassal is the name of the washer of the dead body. She taught by her mother. And she washed body before, but it is the first time working in an emergency situation. The group of women say that this work is their duty as Muslims. They say that they are volunteers. They say that this is our responsibility. This is our last job for the dead people. At just their tent, Gunay and her colleagues say they've been washing 70 bodies per day. A truck arrives with another body. Gunay and her colleagues have to get back to work. Just outside Gunay's tent, fresh graves extend down the hillside. As of this morning, there were more than 4,000 marked with simple pieces of wood. Multiple burials are happening at once across the rocky landscape. The graveyard is so vast that a woman frets that she'll never find her loved one's grave again. Backhoes claw trenches in the ground. Men lower the black body bags in one at a time. At some burials, there are a handful of relatives who watch and pray. At others, dozens. For the unidentified, soldiers and police are called to stand at the graveside. As soon as one body is covered with dirt, another arrives. And this is the scene in just one city, in one part of the sprawling quake zone. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Karaman Marash, Turkey.
Adidas profits are plunging. The company cut long-standing ties with the rapper and designer Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, after he made a series of anti-Semitic remarks. And now the sportswear giant needs to figure out what to do with all the unsold merchandise. NPR's Juliana Kim reports. Adidas is expected to lose $1.2 billion in revenue this year from the decision to not sell the Yeezy-branded merchandise. But retail expert Matt Powell says the options to repurpose the products aren't promising either. They're smart to try to lose as little as they can, uh, but they're clearly going to lose money no matter what alternatives they choose. Powell has worked with Adidas before. He says the first step is to remove the Yeezy branding. But that won't be easy. All of this work is extremely labor intensive and it it can only be done one shoe at a time. The next question is where to sell the merchandise. Powell says the best bet is at its own stores and major consumer markets like the U.S., but at a discount. That's the way to gain the most value. Another issue is that even without the branding, the designs are closely associated with the wrapper. Consider the foam runner. It doesn't look like other slip-on shoes. It has sculpted lines and holes on the sides. Adidas could try to sell its own version, but will people buy them given Ye's hateful remarks? That's the biggest question mark in all of this. There's also the option to remove the branding and try to sell the inventory in smaller markets, typically in developing countries, at an even steeper discount. But these strategies are all risky given that Adidas' reputation has already taken a hit. Powell says the company's overinvestment in the wrapper is ultimately a cautionary tale. They're always somewhat at risk for that person to behave in a way that's no longer consistent with the values of the company, and they have to deal with it. One thing that's definitely not a smart move, doing nothing with the inventory, which could lead to an even greater financial loss for Adidas. Juliana Kim, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, What Do Women Want? We'll hear from the editors of a collection of essays that chases after the true nature of what it means to want anything. That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Rose Art Museum, with Our First and Last Love, an exploration of identity, sexuality, and legacy by Lyle Ashton Harris. Free. Brandeis.edu. <laughs> A Tennessee program aggressively goes after Medicaid fraud cases. That's led to criminal charges against innocent people and reputations ruined. It was horrible. Couldn't get a job. All doors was being closed in my face. The intersection of law enforcement and health care, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had more harsh comments today about his administration's criticism of the College Board's AP African American Studies course. NPR's Greg Allen has the latest. 
DeSantis says the newly developed AP African American Studies course was, quote, indoctrination because it contained sections on critical race theory and queer studies. The College Board has since released a revised version, which it says was not influenced by criticism from the DeSantis administration. In a statement, the organization says it regrets not immediately denouncing, quote, slander that the course lacks educational value. DeSantis says the state may now look for alternatives to the College Board's courses and tests. There are probably some other vendors who may, may be able to do that job uh, as good or maybe even a lot better. DeSantis says it's an issue the legislature may look at in its upcoming session. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. NATO's chief is backing reports that a major new Russian offensive has begun in eastern Ukraine days before the first anniversary of Moscow's invasion. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says he doubts there's any chance of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine after renewed shelling made the situation worse. Almost one year since the invasion, President Putin is not preparing for peace. He is launching new offensives. So we must continue to provide Ukraine with what it needs to win and to achieve a just and sustainable peace. The UN Human Rights Office reports 7,200 civilian deaths and more than 11,000 wounded since Russia's invasion almost one year ago. Most of those deaths are a result of shelling and missile strikes. Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th of last year. Stocks finished higher today on Wall Street. The Dow added 376 points, up more than 1%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has filed her rent control proposal with the city council. WBUR's John Bender reports the measure would cap rent increases for many apartments in the city. The proposal ties rent increases to inflation, specifically the annual Boston Consumer Price Index, a number that comes from the U.S. Labor Department. Annual rent increases would be capped at 10 percent. The rule would not cover owner-occupied buildings with six apartments or fewer. The proposal also includes new eviction protections. The proposed special law would allow the city of Boston to implement rent control, something the state of Massachusetts currently bans. In addition to the council, the proposal requires approval by the legislature and the governor's office in order to move forward. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell and California's Attorney General are leading a coalition calling for student loan repayment reforms. They want the U.S. Department of Education to expand the Income Driven Repayment Program, or IDR, to help struggling borrowers. IDR plans allow borrowers to make payments based on income and family size. Certain loans could also be forgiven after 20 or 25 years of qualifying payments. Campbell and 21 other attorneys general in the coalition want the program expanded to include others, including parent borrowers. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are among a group of lawmakers looking to crack down on semiconductor makers who benefit from the so-called CHIPS Act. The group of Democrats is asking the Commerce Department to prevent corporations from using federal money from the law to engage in stock buyback programs instead of production and expansion efforts as it was intended for. Senator Warren says the buybacks enrich corporate executives and shareholders at taxpayers' expense. A federal judge has handed a legal victory to the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe in its effort to build a casino in Taunton. 
The judge ruled against a group of Taunton residents who sued the federal government to prevent the project from moving forward. The decision in the U.S. District Court of Boston favored the U.S. Department of the Interior, which set aside 321 acres of land for a tribal reservation in Mashpee and Taunton. In 2016, the tribe unveiled plans to build First Light Casino in Taunton. Plans for the $1 billion casino and resort remain on hold. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. In the forecast, mostly cloudy today, chances from showers tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees. Right now, 42 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Today, the CDC released new data on the health behaviors and experiences of 9th through 12th graders all across the country over the last decade. And a warning, we're going to be discussing sexual violence and suicide in this story. The new CDC data shows that in 2021, adolescent girls fared worse than boys on all measures that they looked at, including violence and mental health symptoms. And it also shows that teens who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and questioning continue to face extreme distress and suicidal thoughts and attempts. To tell us more, we're joined now by NPR Health Correspondent Ritu Chatterjee. Hi, Ritu. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so tell us more about what this new report says about what teenage girls are going through. Yeah, so I should point out that the data shows that all teens' mental health has worsened uh, compared to a decade ago. But yes, teen girls are definitely doing far worse, not just in terms of their mental health symptoms, but also the experience of violence. I spoke with the CDC's Kathleen Ethier, and she talked to me about the connection between sexual violence and depression. Of every 10 teen girls that you know, at least one of them, possibly more, have been raped. That is just an overwhelming finding. Um, And so not surprisingly, we're also seeing that almost 60% of teen girls had depressive symptoms in the past year. And that's the highest level recorded by the CDC in a decade. And the new data also shows that one in three girls had seriously considered attempting suicide, which is up by 60% over the last decade. Mm -hmm. And I should point out that teens who identify as LGBTQ+, um, more than half of them experienced poor mental health recently. And one in five had actually attempted suicide in the past year. And and so what do we know about whether this trauma, particularly this sexual trauma, has been driving these levels of despair for teenagers? So I put that question to Dr. Vera Foyer. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Northwell Health in Long Island, New York. And she says a lot of the mental health symptoms have underlying trauma. Most of the kids presenting to psychiatric emergency rooms and a lot of the kids presenting with suicidal thoughts do have 
background that includes trauma, sexual victimization, as well as bullying, cyberbullying. But there's a whole host of other factors. So I spoke with Dr. Stephanie Eakin, who is at Rogers Behavioral Health in Wisconsin, uh, which has a program specifically for teen girls. And she says one of the factors here is that girls are hitting puberty earlier and earlier. When we look at research studies, girls, when they start to hit puberty, start to have increasing rates of depression and anxiety. So there are the hormonal factors that we think could play a role. And then she says, of course, social media has completely transformed how teens socialize, right? And most Mm -hmm. of them are socializing online, not in person, which Egan says has led to a dramatic rise in loneliness, even before the pandemic, actually. And we know that loneliness is really closely tied to uh, suicide. Okay, so it sounds like a combination of biological and social changes that's Mm -hmm. at play here. Are there any good, reliable ways to help support and protect kids going through this? So the good news here, Elsa, is that studies show that social connection, strong social connection, especially connectedness at school with their peers, other caring adults at schools, in communities, in their family, has a huge protective factor, especially against depression and suicide. And the new CDC report points out that schools need to be supported in helping protect kids better. That is NPR's Ritu Chatterjee. Thank you, Ritu. Thank you, Elsa. And if you or anyone you know is experiencing an emotional crisis, you can call or text 988. When it comes to history, sometimes it's right under our noses. That was definitely the case in Williamsburg, Virginia, until recently, when researchers there made an incredible find. Jad Khalil from VPM News reports on history's new home. For decades, a small white house on William and Mary's campus went unnoticed. I passed by it unaware that it was here. Rita Cooper has lived in Williamsburg, Virginia for almost 20 years. She can list off other buildings nearby but didn't know about that one. Sorority houses over here, churches there, William & Mary bookstore, commercial areas. It's a a hub of the community. But Friday, the white-sided building was the center of attention, not only because it was on top of a truck. In 2021, researchers announced it was the Williamsburg Bray School, and they believe it's the oldest existing building in the U.S. that educated black children. As hundreds of people watched the leggy teal trailer crawl through town, workers trimmed oaks and magnolias to clear the way for it. Lonnie Wright watched the house roll by where it was originally built in 1760. The former student said the move is bringing the school and its history new attention. So I was excited to see a resurgence of, I guess, interest around it because it's something that we didn't really talk about. It's like you see it on the tour and then we kept it moving. 20 years ago, an English professor had a hunch that the building was still somewhere on campus. He pored over books and old photos. But the real answer was inside. So the president of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation reached out to Catherine Rowe, the president of William and Mary. He called me up one day and he said, hey, how do you feel if we rip open a wall in one of your dorms? And I said, cool, let's, uh, but why? After studying the wood framing in 2020, researchers confirmed it was the Bray House, which over time was renovated, refurbished, and lost to history. Now the house is on its way to Colonial Williamsburg, a museum where actors interpret the history of early America. Wright wants the school to keep gaining attention. I hope that we don't just move it and leave it there (laughs) and that we are able to have events around it and talk about it. The museum is planning to talk about the school's legacy. It's now in a prominent entryway to the museum. 
Once it opens, actors will talk about race, religion, and education in the 18th century. Between three and 400 children learned here, but today only 86 of them are known. Mary Jones, Elisha Jones, Dennis, Aggie, Roger, Sam. Janice Kennedy and other descendants of the children read their names at a dedication ceremony Friday afternoon. Kennedy learned about her connection to the school through oral histories. So these were people who had to sing their story, you know, tell stories to tell their history, um, and they spoke it. Researchers say they'll use these oral histories as they uncover the hundreds of other students' names. The president of Colonial Williamsburg, Cliff Fleet, said this will help center black history in the early days of American democracy. That is work that we must do to understand who we are as a people. Both the museum and the college called the plans for the Bray School another step in intentionally inclusive approaches to researching and teaching American history. Colonial Williamsburg began having black employees in their interpretive programs in 1979, and in 2009, the college's board acknowledged the university enslaved people from its founding. It set into motion the Lemon Project, an effort to examine the institution's past. Lonnie Wright, the William and Mary alumna, said students have pushed that too through efforts to rename college buildings. There were lots of protests, there were lots of petitions, um, and then eventually, you know, they put in the work to change the names. Colonial Williamsburg scheduled to open the school to the public in September 2024. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Williamsburg, Virginia. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left lasting impressions on others. And today's story comes from Julie Cadwallader-Staub. In 2003, her husband Warren died of cancer at just 49 years old. And not long after his death, she decided to go visit a friend in Boston. Now, Warren had always been the navigator in this relationship, but that did not deter Julie. I'd driven to Boston many times for my husband's chemo treatment at Dana-Farber, so I had plenty of false confidence about being able to make the trip. I arrived there fine. My friend had given me good directions, and I figured I would just do the reverse in order to get back home. I became seriously lost. I had absolutely no idea where I was. Mind you, this was in the days before GPS and cell phones were ubiquitous, and I had neither. By now, I was fighting panic. I finally found a neighborhood gas station. I pulled up to the pump and asked the attendant, how do I get back onto 93 or the Everett Parkway or anything that would head me back north to Vermont? He looked at me blankly and said just a few words in Spanish that meant I don't speak English. I was stuck, no map. I was panicking, I couldn't think straight, I couldn't even think at all. Then the unsung hero was the woman at the next pump. She turned to me and said, listen, it's way too complicated. Just follow me and I'll take you there. 
And I followed her, and she did. And the last thing I saw was her hand out the car window, waving to me and pointing to the highway sign. I was waving too, thanking her with every ounce of my being as I zipped off onto the highway and heading towards home. So to my unsung hero, I have not forgotten your kindness over all these years, and I'm so happy to send this out to you. I hope that you get to hear it. Julie Cadwallader-Staub is a poet living in South Burlington, Vermont. She now has a grandson, also named Warren. You can find more stories from my unsung hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. It's a bird. It's a plane. Nope, it's UAP, an unidentified aerial phenomena. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Totally. We're talking about the Chinese balloon and other items that have been spotted and taken out of the sky in the last week or so. So if they're unidentified and they're flying and they're objects, why not just call them UFOs? Well, we asked retired Vice Admiral Mike Dumont. Some of those terms are used by media and entertainment industries. They're really not appropriate to be used by the U.S. military or the government. So we try to use precision in how we describe these. You can hear our full conversation elsewhere in the program. So to review UFOs fiction, UAP's fact, this is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. It's 449. Ahead on All Things Considered, the man who is Mexico's highest-ranking drug cop is on trial in New York. His arrest soured the U.S. and Mexico's partnership in fighting illegal drugs crossing the border. That's ahead here on WBUR. And check back on the news with WBUR again this evening. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're running errands or heading home for work. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the wife of Wilsden at ART. Pull up a bar stool to the body new comedy by acclaimed author Zadie Smith. Starts February 25th, amrep.org. In sports, Harvard takes on Northeastern in the Beanpot Final tonight over at the Garden. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, chances some showers tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees, partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to clear skies. Highs will be near 48, partly sunny, breezy on Wednesday, a high of 54. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Tasting History. That's the name of a new cookbook created by Lowell teacher Jessica Landers, immigrant high school students. It features delicious dishes from 21 countries, and Lander and two students share their recipes with us, along with their stories of home, love, and identity. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Women want to want. That is the starting premise of two women who have put together an anthology of essays that explore the different shades of female desire. 
Make no mistake, this book is about more than sex. It's a book that delves into how women define what desire is to them, what rules they want to shed to give in to their deepest longings, and what it's like to articulate those desires out loud and unashamed. All these essays are written by women, and this new book called Wanting is edited by Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters, who join us now. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much, Elsa. Thank We're you. so excited. So I want to know how the idea for this book first came together, including the decision to focus on the vantage point of women. Tell me. This is Margot. For me, this book started with a sort of silly story. My family had the great dog debate a few years ago about whether or not we should get a dog. Uh -huh. And I desperately wanted a dog and my husband and my son did not. And we all felt very strongly in our desires, except the funny thing was none of us had ever owned a dog before. So we had no idea whether we would really want the thing we wanted or not want the thing we wanted until we experienced it. And it just got me thinking about the whole notion of desire and how we can ever really know if we want the thing we want. Desires change as your circumstances change. And for both Kelly and I, the topic of desire has been something that we've really sunk our teeth into oh, as we've entered middle age. Wait, wait, wait. Did you guys get a dog or not? We did get a dog. Yes. And was it everything that you thought it would be. It was everything I thought it would be. I was right, of course. <laughs> but my husband and my son love the dog maybe even more than I do. Oh, so let's get into these essays because, you know, desire takes so many forms in these individual pieces. We're not just talking about sex here, as I mentioned. We're talking about the desire to be free, the desire to be alone, the desire for a new car or a pair of cowboy boots. And I'm wondering, when you were asking writers to contribute, how did you frame the whole idea of desire to them? Is it just about longing? This is Kelly. When we first would announce we're writing about, we want you to write about desire, everyone thought, yes, I have a great idea. And what happened is people would tell us their idea or write their idea down. And the focus would be on the thing that they either didn't get, the thing that they did get, or the reason they couldn't get what they wanted. And what we realized we were looking for was the want, the visceral, chemical, emotional, sensory feel of what it feels like to want something. Because as soon as you do or don't get it, it's over. Yeah, right. You know, also many of these essays are about conflicting desires, desires that fight against each other. Like Angela Cardinale's essay, Sex in the Suburbs, she tries dating as a mom throughout the pandemic, but she's torn between this desire to be wild and alone and the desire to be loved again and to grow patio plants with someone, as she put it. This constant push and pull between desires, I feel like a lot of women can relate to this. Completely. This is Margot. I think so many of the essays here traffic in that we want to be there for our children. We want to be great parents. We also want to have an independent life and independent careers. And as much as we want to be there for the school play, we also just want to disappear and get on a plane and go to Paris and mm -hmm. sit in a cafe by ourselves and drink wine and eat cheese. 
Angela's piece, Sex in the Suburbs, has this great line, we are contradictions, living one life, secretly desiring another in a battle with ourselves. And I think so much of female identity is wrapped up in those contradictions, the battles, the things that we think we're supposed to want, the things we actually want. And what happens when we get the thing that we thought we wanted and we're still hungry? So much of desire these essays bring up, it's tied up in our own physical bodies. That's something that Molly McCauley Brown takes on in her essay, The Broken Country. Like she writes about desiring and being desired as a woman with cerebral palsy who lives with chronic pain. Can you talk a little bit about how her relationship with her own body shapes desire for her? This is Kelly. I think really what is so beautiful here is the way that she goes to places that are taboo. And here, what she's talking about are fears as a young person with a debilitating disease that will progress about a ticking clock. And Mm -hmm. she wants to love her body and honor her body. And she wants someone else to as well. And I think the idea that she is struggling with a broken country of desire and being seen as someone who is assumed to not desire right is the most heartbreaking and most powerful part of that entire essay right the assumption that she doesn't desire when she absolutely does and then that's a theme in a lot of these essays that the wanting that deep visceral wanting and the acting on the wanting, that journey, that's the best part. Not necessarily the getting of what you want, right? Can you talk about that? Like, what did you learn about women wanting to want? You know, over the years of putting this anthology together, I have found myself wanting both more and less. I feel more able when these small wants arise to really attend to those desires, to hear them and act, or to say, hey, you know, it's not that big a deal. Because while wanting can be a powerful tool for change, I think what we've also seen here is it can also be a wrench of discord. And I think, this is Kelly, even from the time that we gave birth to this idea of the book in 2019 to when it's coming out in 2023. This was pre-pandemic. This was pre-child tax credit. This was pre-the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And in the short span of time that we worked on this book, female desire has come under attack in a way that I don't think either of us expected when we first thought about collecting essays on this topic. And we're so excited that this is coming out in the world, into the world in this moment, because it almost feels prescient in a way that we could not have planned. Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters are the editors of the new book, Wanting, Women Writing About Desire. Thank you both so much for this awesome book. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Elsa. This was such a pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side-by-side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K-12 learning. More at edutopia.org. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 42 degrees in Boston at just a minute before 5 o'clock. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead in the next hour of All Things Considered, the U.S. has new laws that could make it easier to prosecute war crimes in other countries, something spurred by the war in Ukraine. That's ahead on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington helping all ages overcome anxiety and OCD with a mix of science and compassion. cbteam.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Now, no war criminal will ever be able to use America as a safe haven. The U.S. has new laws that could make it easier to prosecute war crimes committed in other countries. It's Monday, February 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also coming up, the man who was Mexico's highest-ranking drug cop is on trial in New York. His arrest soured the U.S. and Mexico's partnership in fighting illegal drugs crossing the border. And 10 years after a man asked for a procedure to help him with his violent seizures, advancements in robotics and lasers made it possible. Also ahead, Rihanna's bright red Super Bowl halftime outfit made no effort to hide her pregnancy. That choice has already won praise for revolutionizing maternity fashion and celebrating pregnant bodies. It's 501, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says the military is not tracking any unidentified objects over the U.S. right now. That's after fighter jets shot down three aerial objects in three days. As NPR's Scott Detrow reports, the White House still is not saying where the latest objects came from, but did make one key clarification. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre cleared up one important detail right off the bat. There is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Still many other questions remain, including who put the objects in the sky and for what reason. The White House says none had any crew on board and none appeared to have been sending out communication, but the U.S. could not rule out surveillance capabilities. Why the apparent sudden influx of unidentified flying objects? Spokesman John Kirby says in the wake of the Chinese spy balloon, the U.S. and Canada are watching more closely for objects and have adjusted the filters on radars. 
Scott Detrow, NPR News, the White House. Kevin McCarthy will lead his first congressional delegation to the U.S. southern border as House Speaker. NPR's Claudio Grisales reports McCarthy will travel with several new Republican colleagues to the Arizona-Mexico border region. Speaker McCarthy will be joined on the trip by Arizona Congressman Juan Siscomani and three other first-year members from Oregon, Virginia, and Wisconsin. McCarthy's office said they'll visit the Tucson sector, where they will receive a briefing and an aerial tour from U.S. Customs and Border Protection. This follows several border visits by McCarthy as minority leader and marks House Republicans' latest effort to highlight a top concern surrounding border security and immigration. This also comes ahead of a House Judiciary Committee field hearing slated for the Arizona-Mexico border region next week. Claudia Rizales, NPR News. Washington. Ford says it plans to invest $3.5 billion to build a battery plant in Michigan along with China's contemporary Amperex technology. Something of a win for the company's home state, which has seen a number of other projects head elsewhere. The plant would be built in Marshall, Michigan, about 100 miles west of Detroit and create about 2,500 jobs. We'll get a new report card on inflation this week. NPR Scott Horsley reports it's expected to carry mixed signals. The Labor Department is set to report tomorrow on consumer prices for the month of January. Annual inflation is expected to slow for the seventh month in a row. But forecasters think price hikes likely picked up a bit between December and January. Inflation in the eurozone is also cooling, although European prices are still climbing faster than those here in the U.S. The EU's executive commission has raised its forecast for economic growth this year to a still sluggish eight-tenths of one percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks gained ground ahead of that inflation report. The Dow was up 376 points, a gain of more than one percent. The Nasdaq rose 173 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The 16-year-old girl accused of stabbing two people in Jamaica Plain on Saturday is being held without bail. She was identified as Wilmarie Mahia Matos after being arraigned today in adult court. Matos was charged with murder and assault with intent to murder. She pleaded not guilty and is due back in court next month. The warm weather may be creating a bug problem. Scientists say the lack of snow across the region is making ticks active earlier than usual. Larry Dapsis is an entomologist with the Cape Cod Cooperative Extension. He says we normally wouldn't need to worry about tick bites this time of year. As temperatures go below, say, 40 degrees and approach freezing, then we'll basically go into um, a short-term dormancy. And as soon as it warms up, they're instantly back in in motion. Dapsis says you can minimize your exposure by wearing long pants and socks. He also recommends using tick repellent like DEET or permethrin. UMass Amherst is getting closer to appointing a new challenger. One finalist, Javier Reyes, is visiting the university today. Reyes is currently the interim chancellor at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He will spend the afternoon on campus and meet students and staff. The second finalist, Paul Tikalski from Oklahoma State, was at UMass on Friday. The university's current chancellor plans to retire in June after a decade on the job. Massachusetts Senate President Karen Spilka is getting into the Galentine's Day spirit. The holiday first popularized by TV politician Leslie Nope in the sitcom Parks and Rec celebrates female friendships on Valentine's Day. Spilka is holding a Galentine's Day event tonight that will feature female speakers who have made an impact on Massachusetts. We're going to focus on celebrating women, celebrate the barriers that we've broken, rejoice in our friendships, 
and most importantly, have fun. Tonight's speakers include the Governor, Lieutenant Governor, State Attorney General, and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. The gathering kicks off at 5.30 at City Winery in Boston. In sports, Harvard takes on Northeastern in the Beanpot Finals tonight over at the Garden. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tonight. The lows around 35 degrees, partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to clear skies. The highs will be around 48 Partly sunny and breezy on Wednesday, a high of 54 degrees. Thursday should be partly sunny. Chance of showers in the afternoon, a high of 63. Right now, 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. In a Brooklyn federal court, prosecutors are wrapping up their case this week against a former Mexican government official. Hinaro Garcia Luna, who once led Mexico's drug fighting effort, is charged with taking millions of dollars in cash bribes from the drug cartels. This trial comes as the fentanyl crisis has sparked a wave of drug deaths and made the Mexican cartels a political flashpoint here in Washington. NPR's Quill Lawrence has been covering that trial in New York, and our addiction correspondent, Brian Mann, has been reporting on efforts to fight fentanyl smuggling, and they both join us now. Quill, I want to start with you. Take us inside that courtroom. What was the prosecution's case? Yeah, they're painting a picture of a fully integrated criminal enterprise between the Sinaloa drug cartel and the Mexican government, with the help of senior figures like Genaro Garcia Luna, who's on trial. He was running Mexico's sort of FBI equivalent, and then later he was in the cabinet in charge of fighting drugs. And they say that this allowed murder, kidnapping, and billions of dollars of drugs to be smuggled to the U.S. Cartel members were going on raids with the Mexican FBI to attack their rivals or sometimes protect their leaders, let their leaders escape. Uh, today's star witness was Jesus Zambada Garcia, known as El Rey, the King, a Mexican narco. He cut a plea deal, and he was talking about personally packing duffel bags full of cash, millions of dollars to pay the defendant, Enaro Garcia Luna, and then watching him collect those duffel bags. And other cooperating witnesses say they met with Garcia Luna above a car wash or in a warehouse to do the same, to pay him off. Okay, and so what does the defense have to say? Well, they're responding essentially that this is all hearsay and that these witnesses are all themselves confessed narco-traffickers who conspired to murder and torture Mexican civilians and other uh, narco-traffickers and members of the government. Honestly, there was just nobody terribly likable in there for the jury to admire in this case, as far as I could tell. But there doesn't seem to be any hard evidence they've presented. There are no wiretaps or or, uh, DA infiltrators. So the case is not feeling like a sure thing. And if it collapses, it's a huge failure for U.S. prosecutors and already a strain on relations with the government of Mexico. Now, if the case goes through and they convict him, then the question is, how long did the United States government ignore the signs that the top, the very top levels of the Mexican government were involved in this narco-trafficking? Brian, man, I want to bring you in here. I mean, corruption and drug trafficking have been huge problems in Mexico for decades. So tell us, how does this trial fit into efforts to keep drugs out of the United States? 
Yeah, well, as, as Quill suggests there, uh, this prosecution comes at a really bleak time for U.S.-Mexico cooperation on the drug war. And let me just broaden the picture a little bit. In 2019, uh, the same year Garcia Luna was arrested, uh, there was another key arrest. This is during the Trump years, uh, Garcia Luna and a top Mexican official named Salvador Cienfuegos, who was actually Mexico's retired defense secretary, was arrested in Los Angeles. Cienfuegos was eventually uh, released by the U.S., but this sparked a major diplomatic crisis, and Mexico basically halted all cooperation with American law enforcement. What that means, Juana, is that the cartels now operate these drug labs in Mexico with almost complete impunity. Uh, things have improved a bit during the Biden years, but a lot of Mexican leaders have either been corrupted by the cartels or think it's just too dangerous to take on these organizations, which, of course, are extremely powerful and violent. These Mexican cartels are doing a lot more harm now in the U.S. because of fentanyl trafficking. What are you seeing on the street? Yeah, it's bad right now. The cartels decided the synthetic opioid fentanyl is cheap to make. It's easy to smuggle and super profitable. And frankly, they just don't care if it kills a lot more Americans. The wave of death the last three years has been devastating across the U.S., Republicans are making this into a major line of attack against President Biden, arguing he's not doing enough to stop fentanyl smuggling. Here's how this sounded during Biden's State of the Union speech last week. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. Here, Juana, Republicans jeering there. And President Biden went on to promise what he described as a surge of drug interdiction on the border. But I have to say fentanyl is just so easy to smuggle. Uh, experts say stopping it is nearly impossible. I've been talking to a lot of people and I haven't heard anyone, Democrat or Republican, offer a realistic plan for keeping this stuff off American streets. And that, of course, brings us back to this trial in Brooklyn. I've got a question for both of you here. Can this kind of prosecution actually make a difference, keeping drugs off the streets or in weakening the Mexican cartels? Quill, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, just talking from the courthouse in Brooklyn, uh, you know, this trial today really sprang out of testimony during the case against El Chapo Guzman four years ago in the same courthouse. And I I covered that trial. uh, And the testimony from that trial, some of it came from a Colombian kingpin uh, from the the, uh, Cali Norte de Valle cartel. Uh, I covered him when I was a freelancer for NPR in Bogota in 1996. So it really does give this impression that no matter how many they put away, someone will always step up to supply the American demand for narcotics. Yeah, I I think that's right. And the experts I've been talking to want to say, you know, there may be an element of justice here when the U.S. catches and prosecutes and punishes people who fuel and profit from this devastating drug crisis. So, you know, if you've lost a son or daughter to fentanyl or methamphetamines, this trial might feel meaningful, but in the larger sense, there is really no sign right now that cases like this have weakened the Mexican cartels or signs that this is helping Mexico reduce corruption. If anything, what I'm hearing from people I've been talking to the last couple of days, you know, these cartels are stronger than ever. Profits are way up because of fentanyl that's killing tens of thousands of Americans a year. That's NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann and NPR's Quill Lawrence, who was at the courthouse in New York City for the trial of Hinaro Garcia Luna. Thank you both. Thank you, Thank Lana. You. 
The most high-profile aspects of U.S. policy in Ukraine have involved military support against Russia's invasion. A quieter part of the strategy aims to seek justice for war crimes. NPR's Deborah Amos reports on changes to U.S. law that could help in cases that have been tough to prosecute in the past. When Illinois Senator Dick Durbin spoke at Georgetown Law School recently, he made a link between a historic speech to Congress by the president of Ukraine and a new U.S. law that can target war criminals. President Zelensky's message to Congress came at the exact moment we needed to hear it. Just hours after he spoke, the Senate voted to pass the Justice for Victims of War Crimes Act. Now, no war criminal will ever be able to use America as a safe haven. The new law fixes a glaring legal loophole that only allowed prosecution of war criminals in a U.S. court if the victim or the perpetrator is a U.S. citizen, explains Anna Cave. She's head of the Center on National Security at Georgetown Law. The only remedy, she said, was deportation. It's pretty outrageous that a war criminal, under the previous legislation, we would potentially have to prosecute him for visa fraud. We couldn't prosecute him for war crimes. It's crazy to me. Crazy because this has happened. A refugee victim in the U.S. spots his torturer, also a new immigrant, in a local grocery store. Now, the U.S. has jurisdiction over anyone who commits a war crime and is present in the U.S., not just American citizens. It's also a warning. Forget about the trips to Disney World. Forget about your real estate in Florida or New Mexico. You're not wanted. And we'll track you down if you come in. We can actually prosecute you now. That's David Sheffer, a former ambassador for war crimes issues under President Clinton. He notes that another recent piece of legislation is even more closely tied to Ukraine. It allows the U.S. to cooperate with the International Criminal Court in The Hague on matters of Ukraine. Yeah, it's kind of a unique moment. Sheffer also headed the U.S. delegation that negotiated the establishment of the International Criminal Court two decades ago. But the U.S. never formally joined the court amid worries that members of the U.S. military or other American citizens would be hauled before the court. Opposition has been such a constant over the years that Sheffer marvels at the change unthinkable before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I would have said, what? Where is this coming from? But... Ukraine did it. It means the closest U.S. cooperation since the court was established 20 years ago, he says, allowing ICC investigators to work in the U.S. Which could mean, you know, possibly consultations with the intelligence community, looking at uh, Russians who might have come into the United States uh, having already committed crimes in Ukraine. The ICC could be the forum for going after top leaders because they have immunity in national courts. Cooperation with the ICC is a shift for the U.S., but how much of a shift, as human rights activists? Many are critical of this narrow focus. Only on Ukraine? What about Iraq, they say? The U.S. has rejected any investigation into that invasion and has consistently opposed examination of Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. The U.S. still has a very a la carte approach to international justice, and that's, that's a pity. Lottie Like is a Danish jurist, a specialist in humanitarian law. She says U.S. support for international justice comes only when it suits U.S. interests. Washington chooses who must be held accountable, and others are ignored. There will be many who will call out double standards, and they are right. I'm, for one, I'm saying I'm all with you, you know? 
But if we let failures of the past dictate continued failures today and for the future, we are not moving the bar. After so many years of impunity for war crimes, a strong show of accountability somewhere, she says, could lead to accountability everywhere. Deborah Amos, NPR News. Congressman Jamie Raskin is singing out his gratitude, metaphorically anyway, for Stevie Van Zandt on Twitter. The E Street Band guitarist gifted the Maryland Democrat one of his signature bandanas. Raskin has cancer and has been sporting these bandanas on the House floor. He thanked Van Zant for what he called, quote, a step up in his chemo head cover fashions, and he closed with rock on Stevie, keep spreading the light. And you're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. It's 519. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with a former NORAD deputy commander about the recent sightings of uncrewed flying objects. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. It was a good day on Wall Street today. The Dow up 1.1% at 34,246. The S&P 500 up 1.14% at 4137. And the NASDAQ was up almost 1.5%, closing at 11,892. In other business news, gasoline prices in Massachusetts are down 4 cents in the past week. That's according to AAA. The average price of gas in the state sits at $3.38 per gallon. That's still higher than a month ago, but 3 cents below the current national average. A movie theater in the heart of Boston has closed its doors. Regal Fenway is one of 39 Regal Cinemas locations nationwide set to close. Regal locations remain in Marlborough, Kingston, and Bellingham, but the Concord, New Hampshire location is also closing. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. Coming to City Space on February 21st, former CNN chief media correspondent Brian Steltler discusses his work to increase awareness about the media and its impact on democracy. Tickets at wbur.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Technology is changing the way doctors treat severe epilepsy. In San Diego, NPR's John Hamilton spent time with a team of researchers who are using high-tech sensors, tiny lasers, and even robots to help patients reclaim their lives. Tom was 16 when he had his first big seizure, His mom heard it happening. She went upstairs to my bedroom, and I was just in full convulsions. My bed was completely soaked through with sweat, and then my head was contorted. Tom woke up in the hospital, but doctors put him on an epilepsy drug, and the seizure stopped. 
Tom asked that we not use his full name because employers might reject him if they knew his medical history. Tom went to college, worked in Mexico, came back to California, and moved in with his girlfriend. Then he had another big seizure. Now, you know, I'm 25, and I'm diagnosed with a potentially devastating, potentially uncontrollable disorder. One that meant some daily activities were no longer safe. Suddenly, you can't take a bath anymore. You can't go swimming anymore. No more free weights in the gym. Even so, Tom found a job, got married, and had kids. But his uncontrolled epilepsy was taking a big toll on his family. So Tom asked his neurologist to refer him to the Epilepsy Center at the University of California, San Diego. In 2009, doctors there evaluated him for surgery to remove the brain tissue causing his seizures. He spent a week in the hospital and during his stay had a convulsion so intense it caused compression fractures in his spine. After all that, the doctors told him, You're not an optimal surgery patient. We don't feel safe operating on you, and I'm so sorry. Tom returned to work, still struggling with uncontrolled seizures. Within a couple of years, he lost his job. His marriage ended. But he never stopped looking for a way to control his epilepsy. And in 2018, that led him to Dr. Jerry Shi, who directs the Epilepsy Center at UCSD. When I saw him, I said, you know what? We're in a unique situation now where we have some of the newer technologies that were not available in 2010 including a diagnostic procedure called stereoelectroencephalography, or SEEG. Dr. Sharona Benheim of UCSD did the procedure, which involved drilling small holes in Tom's skull and implanting electrodes deep in his brain. We were able to see that there was one specific region of his brain that was really the driver of most of his seizures. She and Benheim thought surgery could fix the problem. In the past, that would have meant opening up Tom's skull to cut out brain tissue. But Benheim and she planned to remove the tissue with heat from a laser probe so thin it could pass through a drinking straw. She says the team used a special type of MRI to guide the probe to its target. Using laser ablation, we actually knocked out that very active seizure focus. And it worked. Tom is seizure-free as long as he takes his medication. He says the surgery that finally ended his seizures was a lot easier than the operation to diagnose his problem a decade earlier. From 2009, I have a five-inch scar on the side of my head. But this operation in 2019, it was a single stitch, a single hole, a single stitch, and I don't have a scar. The technologies that help Tom have the potential to help a lot of other people. About three million adults in the U.S. have epilepsy. More than a quarter of them are unable to control their seizures with drugs. And Benheim says many of these people still don't know about new options like SEEG or laser surgery. We help the vast majority of patients we treat quite significantly with a combination of these technologies. It all starts with better ways of monitoring the brain's electrical activity. Dr. Alexander Kalesi, a neurosurgeon at UCSD, says technological advances are transforming the field known as electrophysiology. If you think about the brain like a musical instrument, the electrophysiology of the brain is the music. And so for so long, we were only looking at a picture of the violin, but for the first time, we're now able to actually listen to the music a little bit better. And identify the source of a sour note. Kalesi says that by combining the information from MRI scans and high-resolution electrophysiology, he now has a much clearer picture of what he needs to do. As a surgeon, just simply put, you can't hit what you can't see. 
Kalesi calls up an image of a patient's brain on his computer screen. It shows a diseased area. It also shows the bundles of critical nerve fibers that lie between the brain surface and the problem. What you see here is a case where we can plan a trajectory to avoid those tracks and deliver laser energy to actually ablate that area. Some of the tools changing epilepsy care are being developed right on the UCSD campus. Shadi Daya, a professor of electrical and computer engineering, is the scientist in charge. So this is our microfabrication lab. It's called Nano3 because it serves science, engineering, and medicine. Daya says one goal here is to improve the resolution of brain sensors using technology developed for electronic displays. So why not take these advances, what we've learned in the journey of the display technology, and implement it for the benefit of medicine? Daya hands me a sensor array slightly larger than a postage stamp. And, you, know, you can feel free to touch this if you like. Early versions of arrays like this had only a few dozen sensors. This one has more than a thousand. This allows us to look at the activity from the surface of the brain with very high resolution. We call it the brain telescope. Then he hands me something that looks and feels like a floppy spaghetti noodle. It's a depth electrode designed to be implanted deep in the brain where many seizures start. More than 100 closely spaced sensors along the device pick up the electrical activity of brain cells. They can also deliver deep brain stimulation. The tip, as you can see, is really very thin, so it causes minimal tissue damage. Less tissue damage means better recording from the brain and uh, less side effects. Both lasers and probes need to be positioned precisely in the brain. And Benheim says that's where another technological advance can help, robots. At UCSD and other cutting-edge epilepsy centers, surgeons often use a system called ROSA, which acts as a sort of GPS for the brain. And it then allows us to essentially steer a surgical arm that takes us right to our target. Sometimes doctors find that seizures are coming from several brain areas or from an area that's too important to eliminate. That's when another new technology can help. Benheim says it's a smart device that records the signals from electrodes permanently implanted in a patient's brain. It's constantly recording in the background seizure activity from where we place those electrodes, and then it's able to essentially defibrillate the brain when it senses uh, the onset of a seizure. She says all of these advances mean that many more patients can now look beyond medication to prevent their seizures. We've transitioned to more of a surgical-based treatment as well as minimally invasive surgical techniques that I think has really revolutionized the, the treatment of epilepsy. Tom is happy to be a part of that revolution. He's 48 now and still takes medication to prevent seizures, but he's remarried, working part-time, and driving a car for the first time in years. I do have a, a sense of, of independence now that I hadn't had since 2007. Thanks to technology that didn't exist back then. John Hamilton, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from BetterHelp. Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on All Things Considered, a building in Virginia that's believed to be the oldest surviving schoolhouse for black children has been moved to a museum. That's ahead here on WBUR. The toxic chemicals known as PFAS have contaminated drinking water supplies across the state, and clean drinking water may get more expensive. WBUR's week-long reporting project starts tomorrow morning. Listen when you wake up. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy with a chance of showers tonight. The lows around 35 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to some clear skies. The highs will be around 48 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Join artists, educators, and counselors and turn your potential into a rewarding career. Explore programs at leslie.edu. A Tennessee program aggressively goes after Medicaid fraud cases. That's led to criminal charges against innocent people and reputations ruined. It was horrible. Couldn't get a job. All doors was being closed in my face. The intersection of law enforcement and health care, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBMR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A week after the catastrophic earthquake in Turkey and Syria, officials say fewer people are being pulled alive from under buildings that crumbled like sandcastles. More than 35,000 people have been reported uh, killed so far, and millions more are displaced in the freezing cold from southeast Turkey. NPR's Jason Bobian tells us some building contractors there were arrested over the weekend. It's no secret that the building construction in Turkey was not designed to withstand earthquakes, despite the fact that this is an earthquake zone. There have been efforts to get those codes to improve, to improve construction practices. You know, some places got hit so hard, but there are other places where, you know, one building ends up standing and and another one next to it completely crumbles. And and a lot of people are starting to ask questions. That's NPR's Jason Bobian in southeast Turkey. A new CDC report finds a disturbing rise in mental health problems and violence among teen girls in the past decade. As NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports, teens identifying as LGBTQ plus are also experiencing extreme emotional distress. Teen girls fared worse than boys on all measures in the report. In 2021, one in five girls experienced sexual violence in the past year. In one in ten said they'd been raped in their lifetime, says Kathleen Ethier, director of the CDC's Division of Adolescent and School Health. That is just an overwhelming finding. Um, And so not surprisingly, we're also seeing that almost 60 percent of teen girls had depressive symptoms in the past year, which is a highest level in a decade. And one in three girls seriously considered attempting suicide, up by 60 percent compared to a decade before. The report also found that one in five teens identifying as lesbian, gay, bisexual or questioning had attempted suicide in the past year. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. No criminal charges should be brought against six police officers involved in the initial shooting of 41-year-old Justin Root outside Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston three years ago this month. That's according to an independent investigation released by the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office today. That shooting took place after the 41-year-old Root allegedly threatened a hospital security guard with a fake gun. After a brief pursuit, police later shot and killed Root in Chestnut Hill. 
The Norfolk County District Attorney's Office determined Root was shot 26 times. His family says Root was experiencing a mental health crisis and that police mishandled the situation. Fresh from her trip to Washington, D.C. last week, Governor Mara Healey says she's working to secure federal funding to deal with two aging Cape Cod bridges. At the State House today, Healey said she has had productive discussions on Capitol Hill about replacing the 90-year-old Bourne and Sagamore bridges, a project that needs nearly 1.9 billion federal dollars. Massachusetts recently lost its second bid to secure those funds. It's making sure that we demonstrate to the federal government that we have uh, the bandwidth, the workforce capacity. Uh, funding, yes, is important because the state needs to put its own amount of funding up. But, you know, the, the conversations that we had, they were a good start, and this is a top priority for me. Healy said the state will apply again soon for the federal money. Full implementation of a law enshrining protections for police dogs in Massachusetts will now be delayed until next year. Nero's Law is named for the German shepherd named Nero, who was injured on the job back in 2018. Emergency responders were not authorized to treat his injuries at the scene. Nero's Law intends to reverse that. State Senator Mark Montigny says the delay is not acceptable and will jeopardize the health and safety of our canine officers without justification. Nero's human partner, Sergeant Sean Gannon, was killed during that incident. Rhode Island School of Design in Providence is the latest school to drop out of the U.S. News and World Report ranking system. In a statement today, the school's president, Crystal Williams, said RISD does not measure the value of its students or academic problems programs based on the same factors as the magazine. Last November, both Harvard and Yale Law Schools also announced that they would no longer participate in the magazine's law school rankings. In sports, Harvard takes on Northeastern in the Beanpot Final tonight over at the Garden. The forecast, mostly cloudy, chance of showers tonight, the lows around 35. Partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to clear skies, the highs will be around 48. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. As people from Montana to South Carolina watched the Chinese spy balloon sail across the sky before it was destroyed last week, it was being closely monitored by NORAD. That's the North American Aerospace Command based in Colorado. NORAD, along with Northern Command, also detected the two other objects, which were seen over Alaska and Canada. Joining us now is retired Vice Admiral Mike Dumont. He was Deputy Commander of Northern Command and Vice Commander of NORAD. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So we have heard a great deal about NORAD and Northern Command over the past week or so. So I'm hoping we can just start by briefly having you tell us how they operate and what it is that they do track on a day-to-day basis. So I think it's important at the outset, Juana, to understand there are two separate organizations. U.S. Northern Command is a U.S. military headquarters, and NORAD is a binational organization comprised of members of both the American military and the Canadian military. So their mission is to provide aerospace warning, aerospace defense, and maritime warning to the approaches of North America. 
And NORAD has a variety of ways of doing that using sophisticated technologies and some less sophisticated technologies. Can you give us a couple examples of what that looks like to the degree that you can share with us? Sure. Um, So the headquarters has a a large operations center with massive video displays and control rooms, as you can imagine. And they're monitoring the airspace over the United States and Canada, what is going on in foreign countries, especially adversary countries, and the maritime approaches to the United States and to Canada, looking for any possible threats or uh, any indicators that something may be going awry. So given all of these ways that NORAD can track things, its sophisticated satellites and radars. Why is it that NORAD could not pick up this Chinese balloon that is said to be the size of a 10-story building? The radars and the satellites that NORAD uses are focused on certain parts of the world, and they're focused on certain types of threats, aircraft and missiles, things of this nature. They're not really focused on smaller objects like weather balloons or a spy balloon, because the radars have a hard time picking them up. When we think of satellites and threats to the United States and Canada, the satellite has to have a triggering event for it to pick up. And by that, I mean when a missile launches or a rocket launches from a foreign country, our satellites will detect that signature. There is no such signature or an explosive event for the launching of a balloon. Unless you know exactly where the balloon is taking off from, it's hard to put a satellite into position to detect that. Okay, so playing this out here, we now hear that NORAD could pick up a smaller balloon the size of a car that was off Alaska. Does that mean that there's been some sort of adjustments to their monitoring? No doubt. I I don't have firsthand knowledge of this, but if I were in that same role today, I would have made some recommendations that we adjust our ability to um, detect certain threats and uh, maybe the size and the composition of what we're looking for with our radars um, would be adjusted. And I'm sure that's what's taken place, and that's why they're able to detect this more. They're looking for them specifically. Based on your experience with NORAD in the past, do you believe that NORAD currently has the base capabilities that exist in order to detect these sorts of airborne threats? NORAD and U.S. NORTHCOM rely on what we call the North Warning System, which is an array of short and long-range radars in northern Canada, uh, Alaska, and elsewhere. They were put into place in the late 1980s, and that system of radar coverage was concluded in about 1992. It's 1970s technology. So no, NORAD does not have what it needs to adequately defend North America. They need new sensors, sensors that are able to detect in all domains. And by all domains, I mean space, land, air for aviation threats, cyber, and maritime. Because NORAD's mandate is to be able to detect, deter, and then defeat any potential threats. And it's hard to do that when you're using 1970s technology. And I have to imagine it would alarm a number of people to hear you say that this is 1970s technology that is being used to detect these types of airborne threats, or even, since we don't know a lot about them, these anomalies. Why is it so outdated? Well, you know, these are very expensive systems. They are backed up by satellites, and they are backed up by other intelligence sources. But the the radars are one of our key pieces of equipment to detect threats. And when you think about where the radars are located, they're operating in harsh operating conditions. The geography plays a role in how much the radars can see. 
because mountains and curvature of the earth will impact uh, the ability of the radars to detect threats on the horizon. So those are all ground-based radars. Those are some of the inherent limitations in our current system. Retired Vice Admiral Mike Dumont, who served with both Northern Command and NORAD, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Juana. Maybe the biggest surprise of Rihanna's Super Bowl halftime show was that she was pregnant and that her outfit made no effort to hide it. She wore a bright red bodysuit with a jumpsuit on top that was unzipped to reveal her baby bump. That look is just the latest example of how the singer has come to redefine maternity fashion. NPR's Rachel Treisman reports. Gabriella Nelson was so stressed about the Super Bowl that she turned to household chores as a distraction until halftime when she gave Rihanna her full attention. Just thinking about her on that stage, suspended in the air, pregnant, letting folks know, give me my money. Like that is, that's feminism, that's womanism right there. <laughs> Nelson is part of an art and education project called Designing Motherhood and works for a maternal care nonprofit. When she learned that Rihanna was pregnant, she was excited to see what the style icon would wear actually quite wonderful. Red is such a powerful color. It's fierce, it's love, it's desire, it's all of the things that, you know, we seek in life, I feel like. This is Rihanna's second pregnancy. Last time, she wore lots of fashion-forward crop tops and low-rise pants. Rihanna called it rebellious. Serena Dyer agrees. She's a historian of material culture at De Montfort University in the UK. And she says that maternity wear has historically been synonymous with morality and modesty. And we're seeing more of a resistance to that and more women wanting to celebrate that changing body, show off that changing body, and not necessarily feel like they have to cover themselves up or change who they are as women because they're going through this process. Rihanna isn't the first celebrity to show off her pregnancy. Among others, Demi Moore posed nude for the cover of Vanity Fair, and Lucille Ball fought successfully to keep filming I Love Lucy while she was pregnant. For Rihanna to make such a statement as a Black woman was both powerful and, in a way, unsurprising, said Gabriella Nelson of Designing Motherhood and the Maternal Care Nonprofit. I have seen many girls whose names I don't know, who will never be in a spotlight, who were probably shamed and talked about, walk down the street where their stomach's out and they're fully pregnant or with a mesh shirt on and they're pregnant. It's nothing new and it's really not special. It's just now in the in the limelight because Beyonce and Rihanna and whoever else are deciding to have children now. Even so, Rihanna's maternity fashion has sparked a conversation and Nelson wants it to shift focus to honoring whatever decisions people make about their bodies, pregnant or not. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Republicans are using their new majority in the House to investigate what they call a crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. There are growing calls in the GOP to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, but Democrats say the disputes amount to policy disagreements, not impeachable offenses. NPR's Joel Rose reports Mayorkas is not backing down. No cabinet member has ever been removed from office by impeachment. That hasn't stopped some House Republicans from trying. Look, I would vote to impeach Mayorkas right now, and I think... That's James Comer of Kentucky, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, speaking to Fox News last month. 
The GOP-led House has held two hearings on the southern border in recent weeks, as well as multiple press conferences and scores of interviews, accusing the Biden administration of deliberately inviting migrants to cross the border illegally to seek asylum. I think it's intentional. I don't know how anyone with common sense or logic can reach any and other conclusion. And this is intentional. In fact, their policy is a success. It's not a failure because this is their intent. And it's being done intentionally, at least as far as having the border open and the, and the ramifications. Those are Republican representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, and Andy Biggs of Arizona. Democrats, including Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, reject those allegations. In fact, the border is not open. There have been a record number of migrant apprehensions over the last two years. The Biden administration has allowed some migrants to seek asylum, which is legal. But it's also adding new enforcement measures aimed at cutting the number of illegal crossings. Still, Republicans keep repeating the claim that Mayorkas is deliberately undermining border security. And experts on impeachment say there's a reason for that language. The strongest and clearest case for impeachment is in cases of intentional misconduct. Joshua Matz is a lawyer who advised Democrats in Congress during the impeachment of former President Trump twice. He's also co-written a book about impeachment titled To End a Presidency. Matt says Republicans are trying to show that this is more than just a normal disagreement over border policy. They want to dress all of that up into an argument that there's some deep underlying intentional policy of essentially failing to administer the southern border and failing to exercise the powers of his office that they would then characterize as impeachable. Matt thinks that's a big stretch, unless one of the congressional investigations turns up some damaging information. Democrats who know Mayorkas say that's not likely. Cecilia Munoz worked closely with the secretary as a policy advisor during the Obama administration. Secretary Mayorkas is one of the most principled public servants I've ever met. And he's going to handle this with real dignity, I think. Munoz says Mayorkas's critics are abusing the impeachment process. This is about politics. What's happening is that we have a challenging situation at the U.S.-Mexico border, and the Republicans want to play politics with it. Since the election of former President Trump, Republicans have increasingly talked about asylum seekers and refugees as a threat and a burden. Here's Representative James Comer of Kentucky again. Mayorkas should have enough pride to resign. He should he should have enough shame. He's put Americans at risk. He's failed to secure the border. Uh, he should go. He should want to go. He should say, look, I've been a failure and I'm leaving. Comer and other Republicans acknowledge that even if the House votes to impeach Mayorkas, the Senate is unlikely to convict. Still, the GOP could make his life difficult over the coming months. But Mayorkas has given no indication that he'll step down. Here he is last month on ABC's This Week. So you have no intention of resigning? I do not. I've got a lot of work to do, and we're going to do it. Speaking to reporters earlier this month, Mayorkas said he takes great exception to the allegations of intentional misconduct. Mayorkas said he does not take the impeachment push personally, but he does intend to make sure it fails. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on U.S. fighter jets shooting objects out of the sky recently. Ahead of spring break, Senator Ed Markey is making another attempt to create federal rules limiting the extra fees some airlines charge. As you pack up for the day, listen again to WBUR at the end of your day.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. In sports, Harvard takes on Northeastern in the Beanpot Final tonight over at the Garden. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a chance of some showers tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to clear skies. The highs will be around 48. Partly sunny and breezy on Wednesday, a high 54 degrees. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Tasting History. That's the name of a new cookbook created by Lowell teacher Jessica Landers' immigrant high school students. It features delicious dishes from 21 countries, and Lander and two students share their recipes with us, along with their stories of home, love, and identity. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. It's been just over a week since a train crashed in northeastern Ohio near the Pennsylvania border. Some of the cars that derailed contained hazardous materials, and residents were evacuated so authorities could release the chemicals through a controlled explosion. Now people are returning home, and many have concerns about the potential health risks of doing so. Reporter Julie Grant with the Allegheny Front has been following the story and joining us now. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Hi. Okay, so let's start with the hazardous materials inside these derailed train cars. What do we know about those chemicals so far? Yeah, well, when the crash occurred, we found out about two toxic chemicals, butyl acrylate and especially vinyl chloride. Exposure to vinyl chloride increases the risk of developing cancer. And those chemicals and the threat of a catastrophic explosion led authorities to order a mandatory evacuation for people who lived within a one by two mile radius of the site on both sides of the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. There's more information now about other contaminants that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency detailed in a letter to the railroad company Norfolk Southern. Those include ethyl hexyl acrylate, which can cause headaches, nausea, respiratory problems in people exposed to it, as well as isobutyl butylene, which can make people dizzy and drowsy, and then another that can irritate a person's eyes, skin, and respiratory tract. My goodness. Okay, so I understand that you have been talking to people who are returning to their homes in the area. How are they doing? Yeah, residents got the announcement late last Thursday that they could return home, and the people I spoke with in one family are back at work and school today, but they're stressed and they're worried, especially after learning about the three new chemicals that were on the train. Some residents have reported soot on their homes and cars and worry that it's contaminated, so cleaning it is a concern. More than 400 residents have requested indoor air monitoring in their homes. At last count, about half of those tested had been completed. The EPA says it found no indoor detection of chemicals of concern. It also continues to monitor air quality in the community and says it has not detected any problems that could be attributed to the derailment. Lawsuits have also been filed against the company, against Norfolk Southern, by business owners and citizens. They say the company was negligent, and one thing they want is the company to fund court-supervised medical screenings for serious illnesses that may be caused by exposure to those chemicals. Mm. 
Well, I imagine it's not just air quality that people are concerned about, right? Like, has there been any talk about danger to water supply there? Well, the U.S. EPA said it did find some of the chemicals in nearby creeks and streams. State regulators confirmed that fish have been killed, but they said the area's drinking water is supplied by groundwater, so it would take longer for these chemicals to move underground if that were to happen. Norfolk Southern released a remediation plan, which lists a number of ways it plans to continue to monitor and clean up the site, including installing wells to monitor the groundwater. That said, this site is also near the Ohio River, which is a major drinking water source. And at least one company that's supplied by the river says it's looking at an alternative water source in case that's needed. You mentioned that fish may be affected. What about possible impacts on other wildlife in the area? Well, there's some concern about endangered salamanders being affected, although experts aren't sure how they might respond to these chemicals. There have also been reports of cats and foxes getting sick or dying, although we have not been able to confirm all those reports. Julie Grant is a reporter with the Allegheny Front, a public radio program that covers environmental issues. Thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. A founding member of the influential hip-hop group De La Soul died on Sunday. Greetings, girl, and welcome to my world of phrase and right up to that. Is the Daisy David Jude Jolie Kerr, a.k.a. Trugoy the Dove, was 54 years old. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this appreciation. Positivity, playfulness, and a sense of humor. That's De La Soul. Now it's time to let this rhyme style get somewhat poured in the mold. Hold my hand and we'll pick my plantation of daisies for a bouquet of soul. Dave Jolie Kerr was born in Brooklyn. When his family moved to Long Island, he met the other members of De La Soul, Vincent Mason and Kelvin Mercer. Record producer and DJ Ninth Wonder first became a fan at age 14 when he saw a video of Me, Myself, and I on MTV. He says they didn't look like other rappers. This is at a time with gold chains and kangos and sweatsuits and, you know, the beginnings of what we know or some people like to call gangster rap or whatever you want to call it. And De La Soul was a eclectic group to give a young black kid at the time, which is me, something different to kind of get into. Not as far as only the sound, but actually the look. They portrayed something more of a hippie or a just something a bohemian type of look. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my daylight clothes or is it just my daylight song? It was all right to be quote-unquote weird. It's all right to just be normal. You know what I mean? You don't have to have a hard edge. You can talk about happy things. You can celebrate. NPR Music senior producer Bobby Carter says younger generations don't always understand just how influential De La Soul was beginning in the late 1980s, partly because their music hasn't been widely available. He says Jolie Kerr's death comes at a time when that's about to change. It feels cruel because on March 3rd, they were going to release the rest of their catalog on the digital streaming platforms just a few weeks away. It's the celebration. You know, we wanted to celebrate that with them when they announced it. It was everyone was just so happy. And we, we you know, we're literally weeks away from that moment. 
where they can finally capitalize off of the hard work and all of this, all of these classic songs, and you just open them up to a new generation. This is piece of the pie is not dessert, but the cost that we dine and three out of every darn time. The effect is mm, when a daisy goes in your mind. Showing true position, this here piece is kissing the part of the pie that's missing, where that negative number fills up the casualty. Maybe you can subtract it. You can call it your lucky partner. Maybe you can call it your adjective. But odd as it may be, without my one and two, where would there be? My three makes possible me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean? All too often, we have to wait for tragedy to strike before we express how much someone means to us, writes Questlove on social media, paying tribute to David Jude Jolie Kerr. He thanked De La Soul for their decades of zaniness, the fun memories of my teen years, the blatant honesty. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. The first time around, you didn't quite understand I'm going to start speaking. Don't worry, we can fix that right now. So why don't you all just grab your bag. Come on board and hoist the answer. We'll be off. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, is there such thing as a good meeting? That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MBArchitectsBoston.com I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There's a lot of confusion about how U.S. fighter jets have come to be shooting so many objects out of the sky in the past few days. The White House is under pressure to explain. It's Monday, February 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on the many balloons spotted flying over North America. Also ahead, one week after a massive earthquake struck eastern Turkey and northern Syria, residents are dealing with burying the tens of thousands of dead. 
And Adidas is expected to lose $1.2 billion in revenue this year from the decision not to sell the Yeezy-branded merchandise. They're smart to try to lose as little as they can, uh, but they're clearly going to lose money no matter what alternatives they choose. Experts say the merchandise from the partnership between the artists formerly known as Kanye West and Adidas will be hard to resell. It's 6.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has fired J. Brett Blanton, the architect of the Capitol, following revelations of misconduct. As NPR's Barbara Spahn explains, the dismissal comes as lawmakers on both sides of the aisle called for his firing or resignation. President Biden terminated J. Brett Blanton amid allegations that he misused government resources, led private tours of the Capitol while it was closed to the public, and allegedly misrepresented himself as a law enforcement officer. Blanton, who was appointed by former President Trump, was responsible in his role for the maintenance, operation, and preservation of the Capitol complex. He was grilled by lawmakers during a hearing last week about an inspector general report from the fall that listed various ethics violations. Blanton also came under fire for not being physically present on the Capitol grounds during the attack on the building on January 6, 2021. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby today refuted Beijing's claim that high-altitude balloons have invaded China's airspace without permission. The remarks came after a Chinese surveillance balloon was shot down earlier this month off the coast of South Carolina and three more additional shootdowns of still unidentified objects in the U.S. and Canada have occurred over the past several days. The most recent one this past weekend. Beijing has continued to say the balloon shot down February 4th was a civilian research craft. All of the craft were downed by U.S. fighter jets. A judge is keeping the recommendations of a special grand jury in Georgia under wraps. The grand jury investigated efforts by former President Trump and his allies to interfere with Georgia's 2020 election. Select portions of the final report will be released Thursday, as Sam Greenglass of Member Station WABE reports. The report may recommend some criminal charges, but Judge Robert McBurney says for now, any recommendations are only for the eyes of Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis. That's in fairness, the judge says, to any potential future defendants. Unlike a trial, a special grand jury investigation is basically one-sided by nature, so the targets wouldn't have had due process to rebut the takeaways. The public will get to see the intro and conclusion, plus a section detailing concerns that unnamed witnesses lied under oath. The DA has said her decision on whether to ask a grand jury to issue indictments is imminent. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Search engine company Google is about to launch a new tool that says is aimed at pre-bunking online information. The tech giant today saying it amounts to an inoculation of sorts aimed at priming a person's critical thinking skills to make them more resistant to false claims. Google says it tested the concept last fall in Eastern Europe, airing short-length videos in which it explained how misinformation can trick the brain. A strong start to the week on Wall Street. The Dow's up 376 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has filed her rent control proposal with the city council. WBUR's John Bender reports the measure would cap rent increases for many apartments in the city. 
The proposal ties rent increases to inflation, specifically the annual Boston Consumer Price Index, a number that comes from the U.S. Labor Department. Annual rent increases would be capped at 10 percent. The rule would not cover owner-occupied buildings with six apartments or fewer. The proposal also includes new eviction protections. The proposed special law would allow the city of Boston to implement rent control, something the state of Massachusetts currently bans. In addition to the council, the proposal requires approval by the legislature and the governor's office in order to move forward. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. The head of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board opposes Mayor Wu's plan. He calls rent control or rent stabilization a proven failure that increases housing costs and discourages new housing construction. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell and California's Attorney General are leading a coalition calling for student loan repayment reforms. They want the U.S. Department of Education to expand the Income Driven Repayment Program, or IDR, to help struggling borrowers. IDR plans allow borrowers to make payments based on income and family size. Certain loans could also be forgiven after 20 or 25 years of qualifying payments. Campbell and 21 other attorneys general in the coalition want the program expanded to include others, including parent borrowers. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are among a group of lawmakers looking to crack down on semiconductor makers who benefit from the so-called CHIPS Act. The group of Democrats is asking the Commerce Department to prevent corporations from using federal money from the law to engage in stock buyback programs instead of production and expansion efforts as it was intended for. Senator Warren says the buybacks enrich corporate executives and shareholders at taxpayers' expense. A federal judge has handed a legal victory to the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe in its effort to build a casino in Taunton. The judge ruled against a group of Taunton residents who sued the federal government to prevent the project from moving forward. The decision in U.S. District Court in Boston favored the U.S. Department of the Interior, which set aside 321 acres of land for a tribal reservation in Mashpee and in Taunton. In 2016, the tribe unveiled plans to build First Light Casino in Taunton, Plans for the $1 billion casino and resort remain on hold. There are extreme delays on the commuter rail tonight on the Framingham-Worcester line. Transit police say there is a strong police presence at the scene between Wellesley Square and Natick Center. It's affected services in both directions. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tonight. The lows will be around 35, partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to clear skies, a high of 48. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Three times in the past three days, U.S. fighter jets shot down slow-moving objects flying high above North America. One in Alaska, one in the Yukon in Canada's north, and yesterday over Lake Huron. Those came about a week after the U.S. shot down a Chinese balloon off the South Carolina coast. It's all extremely weird. And today at the White House, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre wanted to clear up one thing. 
there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Darn. Okay, so not aliens. But what were they? I'm joined now by NPR's Scott Detrow and Greg Myrie. Hey to both of you. Hello. Hi, Elsa. All right, so Scott, I want to start with you. You were in that White House briefing today. What more do we know about these weird things in the air? Other than they're not aliens. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so White House spokesman John Kirby kept stressing that the U.S. government does not have the answers yet to the really big questions here. Who launched these objects and what these objects were doing in the skies? And Kirby said the government is working to recover debris to try and find out. And he says in all three recent cases, the U.S. took the same steps. We assessed whether they posed any kinetic threat to people on the ground. They did not. We assessed whether they were sending any communication signals. We detected none. We looked to see whether they were maneuvering or had any propulsion capabilities. We saw no signs of that. And we made sure to determine whether or not they were manned. They were not. But he said in each case, the U.S. could not rule out surveillance capabilities, so the president ordered them shot down. Okay, but Greg, why why do there seem to be so many of these mysterious things floating in the sky all of a sudden? Yeah, also I think it's two things. First, the discovery of the Chinese spy balloon was just so unusual, so public. You know, spying is not supposed to be public, and this put the national security community on high alert. And when you start looking for something, you often tend to find more of it. And the second thing is the Air Force says it has changed the parameters on its radar. The filters were looking for things like missiles and jet planes, uh, not slow-moving balloons at, at a high altitude. So the parameters are were set wider. And think of it like an email filter. The U.S. was looking for the important stuff, possible threats, and other stuff was going to junk mail. Uh, when the Chinese balloon was uncovered, the U.S. went back, looked at old junk mail. It saw the Chinese balloons had come several times in recent years. And then in the past week, the U.S. has picked up other slow-moving objects that it couldn't ID, and it shot them down. Okay, so wading through this junk mail, I mean, besides the, the potential for surveillance, how are they deciding, like, what to shoot down and what not to shoot down? So the Air Force is authorized to to take immediate action and shoot something down um, if there's a hostile action or intent. But as as, as Scott was saying, or we, we just heard, that that really wasn't the case. So the information was taken, working, worked its way up the chain. President Biden did make the decision to shoot it down. Basically, it seems because these these objects were seen as a possible risk to civilian aircraft. A couple were around forty thousand feet. Another was at twenty thousand feet. So it it could have gotten in the way of uh, of other aircraft. We still don't know if it belonged to a state, a private company, uh, or an academic institution, for example. Okay, but Scott, I'm curious because I know that the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, spoke about all of this today. Why haven't we heard from President Biden yet? I mean, it's a great question. Uh, President Biden did not have any public events today. There have been a lot of calls for explanation on all of this. Uh, Marco Rubio, who's the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Uh, committee tweeted this morning, in its 65-year history, NORAD never shot down an aircraft over U.S. airspace. Over the 10 days, they have shot down one balloon and three objects. Americans need to hear directly about this from their president today. So Biden hasn't spoken about this. The administration has been briefing lawmakers, 
And we have, you know, as you heard, we, we got a lot of details today from the White House, if not the president specifically. I was struck by one thing, that, that, that Kirby kept contrasting how much the U.S. knew about that initial spy balloon versus how much the U.S. doesn't know about these last three objects, even noting several different times that, that there might be a chance here that some of these came from commercial or research operations. It's just very unclear right now. Hmm. Okay. Well, in the time that we have left, I'd like to get a couple of quick parting thoughts from each of you. What will you be watching for? Are we still holding out hope for aliens? Greg? <laughs> well, uh, I, I wouldn't hold your breath. We should note China and the U.S. have massive sophisticated espionage programs. They're constantly spying on each other. And many in the national security community see the spy balloon as an important wake-up call because it, it really put the focus on Chinese spying, and they feel there needs to, to be more of this. That said, many see the balloon program in China as relatively low-level activity, just a small part of these Chinese efforts that target the U.S. government and, and military secrets. Scott? I mean, I'm always holding out hope for aliens, but but <laughs> but, um, but seriously, Biden and the White House talk so much about managed competition with China, not conflict. Now, with U.S. fighter jets shooting objects out of the sky, I think there's a real threat that relations veer in the direction of conflict. So how does this de-escalate? That's my big question. That is NPR Scott Detrow and Greg Myrie. Thank you to both of you. Sure thing. My pleasure. It was the announcement heard around the internet. Shopify was doing away with meetings. The e-commerce platform called it useful subtraction, freeing up time to allow people to get stuff done. And the news got people talking and wondering, well, how do you actually do that? NPR's Andrea Shu and Stacey Vanek-Smith take it from here. The meeting situation in a lot of jobs has gotten kind of out of control since COVID. In one study, Microsoft found the amount of time workers spend in meetings has more than tripled. That's a lot of meetings. Yes. But I can see it. Here at NPR, there are a lot of things I could be going to. There's the weekly all staff. There are two weekly pitch meetings. A training session, actually two of those. There's the audience insights meeting. And then there are the extracurricular fun meetings, like trivia night. Of course, I do love trivia. Still, it's easy to see how a lot of us hit peak meeting misery over the past few years. The idea of deleting all those meetings seems so refreshing. And radical. We have been wondering, how are things going at Shopify a month in? Yes. So we got on a Zoom with Shopify's chief operating officer, Kaz Najatian. He's the one who wrote the memo about purging meetings. Turns out he is as hardcore as he sounds. All meetings are bad meetings. Andrea, he is a true believer. We deleted 322 thousand hours of meetings. That is in a company of about 10,000 employees. And they actually wrote code to do this. There is a bot that went into everyone's calendars and purged all recurring meetings with three or more people. Now, after two weeks, people were allowed to add things back if they really needed to. But not on Wednesdays. They have no meetings Wednesdays. And if you violate that... You get a uh, Slack bot telling you, you booked a meeting at a time you're not allowed to book a meeting. Are you sure you want to do this? Najatian told us most Shopify employees are following the rules and they're so much happier. I had an engineer tell me for the first time in a very long time they got to write code all day. Apparently, this is what engineers want, just a code in peace. <laughs> uh, but mostly he says this moment for Shopify was this big reset. Now people feel empowered to say no to meeting invitations, even when those invitations come from really senior people. People have been saying no to meetings from me, and I'm a CEO at a company, and that's great. 
Okay, but to be fair, Stacey, in putting this story together, you and I did have a bunch of meetings. <laughs> yes. And I thought they were pretty useful. Yeah, I mean, we tossed ideas back and forth. We roped in our editors. We planned out what we would report. It was way better than just slacking endlessly. But when we asked Kaz Najatian about this, about collaboration, well, here's what he said. I think collaboration is a wonderful thing, but the largest collaborative things in the world happen without meetings. Every open source project, open source software project in the world is created with no meetings. People just collaborate and code. And at that point in the conversation, I was kind of lost. I mean, I don't know how to write code. Do you, Stacey? I do not. Maybe we're doomed to go to meetings, Andrea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've all been in meetings that have gone on way too long, where the conversation has gone off the rails. I get that. But how much we need or don't need meetings, maybe that's not so universal. Yes. I mean, at Shopify, for instance, everyone is remote. Kaz Najatian was in the Bahamas when we talked to him. Also, you know, their main product is this digital platform. Maybe they're fine with very few meetings. And I get why companies want fewer meetings. For one thing, meetings are expensive. Steven Rogelberg at UNC Charlotte has studied this. He says companies waste tens of millions of dollars forcing people to attend unnecessary meetings. I hate meetings. I hate meetings. But... But, he says, good meetings are critical to a company's success. He says that's how people can be heard. And virtual meetings, he thinks, are actually helping to make meetings better. Inherently, virtual meetings are set up to be much more democratic, right? There's no head of table effects. Everyone is on equal standing around the virtual table. He loves that people have the option to just drop something into the chat box if they don't want to speak up. What's more, he says studies show companies that run excellent meetings are more profitable because their employees are more engaged. They do a better job. On the flip side, disengaged workers end up quiet quitting or actually quitting. We've seen a lot of that lately. We have. And, you know, Andrea, even if good meetings have value, no one's going to, like, really say they love meetings. That is not socially acceptable, right? But the utterances about how much you hate meetings is completely on brand and universal. Now, Rogelberg does see a silver lining here. All of our collective rage about meetings since the pandemic, well, companies are finally paying attention. I mean, I am talking to organizations all the time, and I am just finding the appetite for solutions the highest it's ever been. In fact, Andrea, just days after Shopify's announcement, we got a memo. Yeah, here at NPR, the hunt for unnecessary meetings is on. Just as long as they don't cut trivia night. <laughs> Andrea Shu, Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 40 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, a week after a massive earthquake struck eastern Turkey and northern Syria, residents are dealing with burying the tens of thousands of dead. That's ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. 
On Wall Street, stocks ended the day higher. The Dow was up 1.1% at 34,246. The S&P 500 up 1.14% at 4137. And the Nasdaq was up almost 1.5% at 11,892. Checking other business news, Lexington-based pharmaceutical startup Frequency Therapeutics is laying off over half of its employees. That's 26 out of a total of 48 workers for the company that develops drugs for hearing loss, according to the Boston Business Journal. The company's share took a nosedive today after a drug in a clinical trial failed to improve patient speech perception. Frequency will pivot to focus on multiple sclerosis and other muscular disorders. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Discover a dynamic career with a master's in clinical mental health counseling. With individualized experiential learning, you will thrive. GRE and prerequisite courses not required. State licensure eligible. Now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Survivors of the earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria last week enter a grim new phase of their struggle. At least 33,000 people have died, and their relatives are working to recover their remains and give them proper burials. NPR's Jason Bobian reports that communities are forming to treat with respect those who have been lost. On the outskirts of a cemetery overlooking the town of Pasarjik, Ali and Fatih Gul are preparing a grave for their uncle. The uncle's body is still trapped in the rubble of his collapsed apartment building. The brothers lost five members of the family in the quake. They're still waiting to bury three. Ali says through an interpreter that he wants his uncle's grave to be ready. They are originally from here, therefore they bring their dead people here. They buried some of them who they could get out of the rubber and they are waiting for the rest. The brothers have hired three grave diggers to dig the hole. The workers tell them the normal price for the work, but then quickly add, if you don't have any money, we'll dig it for free. Nearly 500 people from Pasarchik and the surrounding villages have already been buried. Fatih is employed with the local municipal government. He says it's been a lot of work, but everyone will eventually be properly laid to rest. Pazarcik has 7,000 population. There is no undefined burial or funeral. We know everyone, he says it, because our family ties are too strong. There's a calmness at the cemetery in Pazarcik. That's not the case in the nearby city of Karman Marash where the air is thick with wood smoke and dust from backhoes digging through the rubble of collapsed buildings. Right next door to an outdoor stadium full of white tents where hundreds of people are now living, there's a temporary morgue. It's inside a gym, but its parking lot also holds a soup kitchen. A family comes here and we manage them to go right for food and go left for a death human. Fritz Mertens is with a team of German undertakers called Death Care. He says some people arrive in small cars with a family member wrapped in a sheet in the back. Another ambulance backs up to the front door of the gym slash morgue, followed by a truck. They both carry more corpses. Please go uh, by side because yes, absolutely. The, deliv- uh, delivery. No? The volunteers from Mertens' organization clean and disinfect the bodies. A doctor on site officially verifies the identity of the corpse, if possible. Then the German death care team 
close the body bag. If the body bag is uh, damaged, we get a new one. And uh, the family get a small piece of paper with the name on it. And with this, the next transportation is out of the town to the cemetery, and then they get buried. From the makeshift morgue in Karman Marash, relatives of the deceased can collect the corpses. But with thousands of people dead in this city alone, most families have nowhere to take them. All of the cemeteries are full. So most of the bodies are sent to a new mass grave on the outskirts of the city. A steady stream of corpses keeps arriving in ambulances, trucks, and even private cars. A woman sits on the ground, caressing a full black body bag. Each body is at first inspected and photographed by police officers. Then the corpse is zipped back into its bag and sent to be ritually washed according to Islamic custom. At the top of the hill, there are 19 tents for body washing. A group of female body washers takes a break by a small fire to warm up. They wear long blue surgical smocks over puffy winter jackets. Mevlude Gunay says the women working here have come from all over Turkey to help in the midst of this catastrophe. Gunay is from a town which is 10 hours from here. At home, she's a teacher. Her mother was a Gassal. Gassal is the name of the washer of the dead body. She taught by her mother. And she washed body before, but it is the first time working in an emergency situation. The group of women say that this work is their duty as Muslims. They say that they are volunteers. They say that this is our responsibility. This is our last job for the dead people. At just their tent, Gunay and her colleagues say they've been washing 70 bodies per day. A truck arrives with another body. Gunay and her colleagues have to get back to work. Just outside Gunay's tent, fresh graves extend down the hillside. As of this morning, there were more than 4,000 marked with simple pieces of wood. Multiple burials are happening at once across the rocky landscape. The graveyard is so vast that a woman frets that she'll never find her loved one's grave again. Backhoes claw trenches in the ground. Men lower the black body bags in one at a time. At some burials, there are a handful of relatives who watch and pray. At others, dozens. For the unidentified, soldiers and police are called to stand at the graveside. As soon as one body is covered with dirt, another arrives. And this is the scene in just one city, in one part of the sprawling quake zone. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Karaman Marash, Turkey. Adidas profits are plunging. The company cut long-standing ties with the rapper and designer Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, after he made a series of anti-Semitic remarks. And now the sportswear giant needs to figure out what to do with all the unsold merchandise. NPR's Juliana Kim reports. Adidas is expected to lose $1.2 billion in revenue this year from the decision to not sell the Yeezy-branded merchandise. But retail expert Matt Powell says the options to repurpose the products aren't promising either. They're smart to try to lose as little as they can, uh, but they're clearly going to lose money no matter what alternatives they choose. Powell has worked with Adidas before. 
He says the first step is to remove the Yeezy branding, but that won't be easy. All of this work is extremely labor intensive and it, it can only be done one shoe at a time. The next question is where to sell the merchandise. Powell says the best bet is at its own stores in major consumer markets like the U.S., but at a discount. That's the way to gain the most value. Another issue is that even without the branding, the designs are closely associated with the wrapper. Consider the foam runner. It doesn't look like other slip-on shoes. It has sculpted lines and holes on the sides. Adidas could try to sell its own version, but will people buy them given Ye's hateful remarks? That's the biggest question mark in all of this. There's also the option to remove the branding and try to sell the inventory in smaller markets, typically in developing countries, at an even steeper discount. But these strategies are all risky given that Adidas' reputation has already taken a hit. Powell says the company's overinvestment in the wrapper is ultimately a cautionary tale. They're always somewhat at risk for that person to behave in a way that's no longer consistent with the values of the company, and they have to deal with it. One thing that's definitely not a smart move, doing nothing with the inventory, which could lead to an even greater financial loss for Adidas. Juliana Kim, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of showers tonight. The lows will be around 35 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow, giving way to clear skies. The highs will be near 48 degrees. Partly sunny and breezy on Wednesday, a high 54. Thursday should be partly sunny with a chance of showers later in the afternoon. The highs around 63 degrees. It'll be mostly cloudy with showers likely on Friday. The highs will be around 60. And right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.